<coughs> Pray with me. Lord God, this morning uh, we've come to hear your word, and uh, Father, I am insufficient for the task of uh, opening your word to your people. And so, Lord, uh, this morning we would just ask that um, your spirit would come, that he would help us open our minds to your word, he would illuminate your word, Lord God, that he would um, give us clarity so that we might respond to it in faith. We thank you for this, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of James, and we come this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Now, if you've read through James 4 recently, uh, perhaps in getting ready to gather uh, for this service today, uh, or just in your devotions or study. If you've read James 4 recently, you'll know that James 4 is somewhat of a difficult passage to get a grip on. Uh, There is uh, a lot of uh, great truths found in James 4. Uh, but, But as a whole... So that we can, you know, discover exactly what it is that James is communicating, it's a little bit difficult to get a grip on. There's a number of interpretive difficulties uh, in it. Uh, it, There's some awkward movements through the passage, and there is a couple of um, textual references that cause us to ask some questions. And and so for all this, it proves to be um, a, a bit more difficult to interpret than other passages of Scripture. Now, I want you to hear me. I don't say that lightly. I don't ever want to communicate that Scripture is difficult to interpret. Um, God gave His his Word to His people so that they could know Him. And and, uh, that's what we do when we gather here. We should see when we gather together and we work through His Word together that we can understand what God has said. Uh, So, I don't want to communicate that God's Word as a whole is hard to understand, but I do want to warn you as we dive in this morning that we're going to have to do a little bit more digging in this passage than what's probably uh, than what we probably do normally if we're going to, to discover exactly what it is that James means. Again, there is a lot of great truths in this passage. In fact, that's what makes it a little bit difficult to interpret. James here is actually bringing together um, all of the themes that he's talked about in his book so far, and he's bringing them to bear in one passage on his hearers. So we've got to discover exactly what he wants us to respond to here. But we can discover what he's saying. I believe that the main idea that he's trying to get across is this. True believers cannot long delight in sin because the grace of God produces in them faithful devotion and humble submission to him. I'll say that again because there are several movements in the passage and we want to get a grip on that main idea and then work through it together. The main idea is true believers cannot long delight in sin because the grace of God produces in them faithful devotion and humble submission to him. 
Now, as we go forward, I hope to show you this in the text. Uh, so keep your Bibles open, and you can look down at your text and look back at me, and I'll assume as your head is going up and down looking at your Bible and looking at me that you're agreeing with me, all right? Now then, uh, let's read the text together and discover what it says to us this morning. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. James writes this section of the letter addressing some conflicts that have arisen among the believers. But, but he quickly shows that whatever the specific content of these fights, the conflicts themselves were not the underlying issue. The, the apostle moves past the surface level and says that the strife between the believers is actually a byproduct of the sinful desires that his readers have sought to satisfy rather than to snuff out. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers his own question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The, the term passions here refers to those sinful desires that our depraved nature has such a craving for. Things like power and pleasure, prosperity, prestige. We crave these things naturally. We desire to be looked on as significant. We desire to gather to ourselves much so that we can think we are significant. All of these things, James says, are at war within these individuals. And the war that James speaks of here is not really a, a war between the individuals um, against their sinful desires. I, it, it seems pretty clear from what he goes on to say that there wasn't much resistance against those sinful desires. Really what's being described here is the normal activity of sin that continues to indwell believers. 
if you've walked with the Lord for very long, then, then you know that sin does not softly suggest possible pleasures in, in hopes that you grant its timid request. You know that that's not how sin works. No, sin, like a vicious tyrant, always impatiently demands that you quench its insatiable appetite. And when it comes to you, it refuses to rest until those pleasures are acted upon. Thus, sin rises up and it makes war within us until it gets its way. This is the, the sense in which James uses the term here. And what we find here is that those James is writing to, they are not resisting that tyrannical reign of sin in their lives. Quite the opposite, they are looking for, desire, or, or for um, opportunities to fulfill these worldly pleasures. And in doing so, they probably thought that this was just an internal battle going on. But James shows that this is manifesting itself in a destructive kind of way in these believers. In the first of many sort of parallels, you uh, see James saying, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You can see the repetition there. You desire and do not have, you covet and cannot obtain. There was this jealous longing for things that God had not chosen to give these individuals. And not making war against these covetous desires, but rather giving over to the, these longings, they become so intense that these individuals fight, they quarrel, and yes, James even says they murder so that these longings might be gratified. Now, it's important that we pause here for just a moment, and ask, just what does James mean when he says, speaking of a group of supposed believers, that they've gone so far as to murder in effort to satisfy their cravings? Well, I don't think we should understand him to be talking about actually taking another's life. And we gather this from the broader context that James, uh, of James' writing. As we've been reading and studying through the book of James, one of the things that becomes uh, strikingly evident is James' use of terminology very uh, like unto Jesus' terminology in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> in fact, it seems to me that James' letter is by and large the practical application of the theology that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so... What that means is we should read the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James side by side, letting the Sermon on the Mount then inform how we read the book of James. So what does this have to do with James accusing someone of murder who actually hasn't taken anyone's life? Well, remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. He says, You have heard it said, uh, of the, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be uh, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So Jesus equates unrighteous anger and harmful language with murder. And this 
this fits quite well considering the fights and the quarrels that James mentions here and in the command that he gives later in verse 11 not to speak evil against one another. For, for this and other reasons, I think that what we should understand James to be condemning here is the hateful bitterness that those jealous longings, that, that covetousness is giving birth to in these individuals. <clears throat> James doesn't stop there, though, in exposing the spiritual rot of his audience. He then explains why they're left in want of their desires being met. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, as you read through that, you may, as I certainly was, be a bit perplexed. James, you've just condemned them for their covetousness and their longing after the pleasures of the world. So how could you say that if you would simply ask God, these desires would be met? How could a holy and righteous God act on that? How could a holy and righteous God grant such a request? But again here, the broader context of the book should inform how we understand what the apostle is saying. If you'll remember... From our text just last week in chapter 3, verse 13, James asked sort of sarcastically, who is wise and understanding among you? And then goes on to explain what true wisdom, what, what, what godly wisdom is really like. And then if you recall, even on back to chapter 1, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So all this works to show that there there was some kind of desire among these believers in an effort to obtain what they called wisdom, misguided as their understanding about wisdom would have been, that there was this desire to obtain it. And throughout the letter, James hasn't told them to stop seeking for wisdom. He's actually encouraged them to seek God's wisdom. And in fact, he, he, he has uh, over and over again done this repetitiously, as we've seen throughout the book, even unto today, I think. Because when we consider that, <clears throat> we hear then James saying, the reason your desires aren't met is because you don't ask. We carry that thought process of chapter 1 and chapter 3 into this, and we hear him saying, the reasons your desires aren't met for wisdom is because you don't ask. Now, that wisdom was a worldly wisdom that they were seeking for. So you still say, wait, God would not grant that request, surely. Yes, James agrees. If you go on and read on to uh, verse 3, it it becomes clear, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That term passions is the same word he used to refer to the ungodly lusts and desires just uh, a, a verse ago. So these individuals have been so arrogant, we see, as to ask God for wisdom. Why? For Purposes of serving him? For obeying him? For for advancing his kingdom? No. They, They have sought God. They have asked 
God for wisdom only out of the selfish ambition in their hearts to obtain the things that they have jealously longed for and bitterly fought to take hold of. Friends, we are intended to see the the gross arrogance of what's taking place here. They have actually sought God's blessing in order to secure the very means by which they would offend and defy God. They want worldly wisdom so that they can get power, so that they can obtain pleasures, so that they can become prosperous. And that power, prosperity, and pleasure all they seek to find fulfillment in rather than God. So James, in light of these wicked motivations being uncovered, says in verse 4, he, 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 he forcefully brings this challenge of adultery against them. And we understand this not as physical, obviously, but, but spiritual adultery. It was a charge that the prophets brought against Old Testament Israel when they would go and worship other uh, or, or worship idols rather than worship Yahweh. Now, in this New Testament context, those James is writing to weren't physically bowing in idol worship, but their hearts were bowing in a commitment to idols like power and possession and pleasure. So James says, you adulterous people, which carries a lot of weight considering how many times in this letter he's referred to these men and women as brothers, sisters, even beloved brothers. But here, the tone shifts. James says, what you are involved in is not the activity of a brother or sister in Christ. Like unfaithful Israelites of old, uniting themselves to other gods, these individuals have sought to unite themselves to the world, seeking satisfaction and delight in all that it has to offer, rather than seeking to delight in God. And this, James calls adultery, because we have trouble thinking of our sins in this way sometimes, But James helps us to see this is just as real an offense against God as if you were to kiss your spouse and flee to the arms of another. What you're doing is a real offense against God. It's a heinous offense against God. So, these individuals thinking themselves to be Christian, James points out a problem in them. These individuals, they thought that they could cling to the world and claim to be devoted to God at the same time. But he asked, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You see, they were blind to what their sinful appetites were proving about their spiritual state. Our brother Neil just preached to us a couple of weeks ago on the fact that true faith bears out works. True faith bears out good works. In fact, that's uh, the, the, the main theme that runs throughout James. But they were blind to the reality that their sinful 
appetites were proving something other than what they claimed to be true about themselves. I mean, what, what is one of, if not the, most fundamental realities of what it means to be Christian? To have peace with God. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came. This is why He lived a sinless life. This is why He died. This is why He's resurrected on our behalf so that He could secure peace with God for us. And James says to these people that if you have friendship with the world, if you're uniting yourself to it by pursuing its temporal pleasures, you don't have peace with God. You have enmity with God. This is a sobering reality that he's bringing out here. Now, so far, we've talked a lot about what was true of the original audience that James addressed this to. But what James wrote to his original audience, the Holy Spirit intends to apply to us this morning. So let me ask you, What is it that you're seeking satisfaction in? I I urge you to consider this morning, is your primary concern in life how you can fulfill your pleasures? Are you content to just pursue what the normal non-believer is content to pursue and just add God to that? Don't don't think that just because you do Christian things or, or you profess to have a desire to know God that you're exempt from this. Oftentimes, a little digging will unearth that a world of ungodliness hides just beneath a thin veneer of religiosity. That was the case for James' original audience here. So friends, this is so applicable to us this morning that find ourselves in a church on Sunday mornings. We need to ask ourselves these questions. You know, because that is the case, because that is the context into which James was writing, and that's the context that we find ourselves in, I find another helpful way to evaluate our spiritual state is to do just what the apostle has done for his audience here, and that is to contemplate the content and the motivation of your prayers. This really helps us to discover our true spiritual state, the health of our walk with God. Do your prayers reflect more of your heart, like these individuals' prayers did? Or do your prayers reflect the heart and desires of God? We should spend time examining ourselves in these things. And after seriously thinking about this, if you find that your primary concerns, your motivations, your desires are uniting you to the world, hear what James says to you this morning. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, Just to be clear, James is not advocating any kind of loss of salvation there. But it does mean that the one who wishes to be a friend of the world proves himself 
to be an enemy of God. Shows himself to be an enemy of God. In order to prove his point, James says in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, a couple of questions would be appropriate here. Uh, obviously, we want to know how this advances the idea that James set forth that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But we have to understand exactly what he's saying in verse 5 before we can know how it advances his thought. And it's kind of a peculiar statement to get our, our, our hands around. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Okay, a couple of different things that could mean, I guess. So in order to get our hands around this a little bit better, we do what any good Bible student does, and you look for where James has quoted this from. He says, the Scriptures say this. So we look for where James has quoted this from to get a sense of the context there. Then we can get a better sense of what he means. The only problem is, when you do this, when you, when you search for that, you find that James hasn't quoted this from any scripture passage. Now, that doesn't mean that James has lied in crediting this phrase to the Bible. The best way to understand what James uh, means here when he uh, uses reference to the scriptures is to take him as speaking of the way that the whole body of God's inspired word develops the theme of God's jealousy for the affections and faithfulness of his children. James is speaking to the way that the Bible as a whole talks about God's jealousy for the affections and the faithfulness of his children. So the best parallel to this that we have um, of what James is saying here concerning God's jealousy and the work of the Spirit in the life of the believers is a few verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Mind you, James is talking about the spiritual adultery that is idolatry. Okay, so that in mind, let's listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, Paul says, from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So, what 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 5 in James 4 are telling us is that where the Spirit of God is, there is no tolerance for delighting in sin. God is jealous for the sole devotion of His children, like a husband is ever jealous for the sole devotion of his spouse. So jealous is God for the pure 
commitment of His children to Him that He gives His Spirit, whose job it is to free us from bondage to sin and to burn away our appetite for earthly things. Just just hear how Romans 8 describes the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So James makes clear with verse 5 that those indwelt by the Spirit of God will, by His power and grace, find themselves having a weakening commitment to the pleasures of this world and a growing commitment to the Lord. Then we read in verse 6, which proves to be the most pivotal verse in the entire passage, this. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, when we read that, one may ask, More grace than what? (laughs) That kind of comes out of nowhere. James hasn't been discussing any uh, dispensing of grace. Well, yes, that's true. But what he has shown is, number one, the Spirit of God being the insatiable fire that burns away sinful desires will do that work wherever he resides. And number two, James has shown that these individuals haven't been given to that task of killing indwelling sin. Thus, having brought these two realities to light, there should be a great concern, both to his original audience and to us, as to whether or not individuals like those that he's described are actually Christians, indwelt by the Spirit of God. So, if nothing else, the mention of grace should excite us. Because likely, by this point, you've been able to identify yourself at some level with those James is writing to. So, grace? Yes, please. But more grace than what? Well, James roots this truth of God giving more grace in an Old Testament verse that tells us that those who are humble before the Lord can expect His grace. So the whole of verse 6 is telling us that even in the face of our natural sinful longings that can tempt us and lure us to be unfaithful to God, and even though God is a jealous God who sends His Spirit to purge His children of the sin that He hates, even still, God is a God of grace. This is a hope-filled promise that just as real and as strong as His jealousy, so also His grace is toward those who are humble in heart. It's the answer to those who are responding to James' previous verses by asking, well, how do I know that the Spirit lives within me and is doing His work if, if, I, if I give in to sin at times? The answer, 
a humble heart. When you give in to sin, what's your response? Is your heart made glad in sin? Are you only disappointed in yourself when you sin? Or like David, when he repented of his transgression, do you run to God saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? And do you come to God with a lowly posture, remembering what David says, that God will not delight in sacrifice. God will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. If you see true humility toward God in response to your sin, rather than an increased desire for it or or an apathy about it, then be encouraged this morning. That only comes from the Spirit of God that He has caused to dwell in you, that humility. Humility toward God is not something that the natural person has. Romans 8 tells us plainly, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is hostile to God, the natural mind, natural heart. So you see here, what's so remarkable about this is that the very thing that God requires, He supplies. The the humility that God demands from His children who stand to receive His grace isn't something that we come up with on our own. No, humility before the Lord is the very work of God manifesting itself in our lives. It's it's the germ, it's the the seed from which all the other fruit of the Spirit grows. But humility is tantamount. It, it, It is the thing here that we need to be concerned with as we consider the indwelling sin uh, in our lives, is the thread in our lives that of humility, the constant thread woven throughout in the sin, in the victory, in the sin, in the victory, is, is the constant thread woven throughout humility. If so, be encouraged. The, uh, or excuse me, nonetheless, true humility inevitably will work itself out in submission to God. That's why we read, submit yourselves therefore to God. The, the therefore is key for us to understand what James has been developing throughout the entire epistle, which is that true faith will produce works. He's saying that true humility before God doesn't just bring brokenness over sin. It produces obedience in light of God's grace. So James calls us, no matter what worldly sin you've been given to, to forsake that and pursue obedience to God. After having lifted up the grace of God for us to rejoice and revel in and be thankful for, he calls us to see that Pursuit of holiness to God does not undermine God's grace. It evidences it. 
pursuit of obedience to God does not undermine God's grace. It evidences it. And if, if you need more proof of this, just remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, which tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thus, what, what follows in the passage here is James' practical instruction on what humble submission to God should look like. Do you have this humility in your life? Well, here's how you pursue obedience to God in humility. So he gives a, a series of commands. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. These are two things that we're called to do simultaneously, and it's the biblical picture, really, of of repentance. Not just turning away from sin and Satan, but turning yourself toward God in submission to Him. And oh, the promises that that are given to us, that are connected to this instruction. It's such a blessing to know that though... In the moment, the battery of temptation might seem unending, but God has told us if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And how kind of the Lord to give us this promise that in drawing near near to him through obedience, he in his fullness moves toward us. Then James gives a, a call to purity, both externally and internally. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And saying cleanse your hands, the apostle is, is calling for a cessation of whatever sinful behavior you might be caught up in. It's not enough to just claim to be broken over your sin. You must stop. That's that's what he makes clear. Again, it's the the biblical idea of repentance. We, We actually turn away from our sin. Yet, we know that the Lord calls us to more than behavior modification. James says, yes, cleanse your hands. Get rid of the external sin. Turn away from it. Stop it. But God calls us also to purify our hearts. Now, one may say, well, that sounds kind of ambiguous. I mean, how do I purify my heart? Well, for this, we submit ourselves to God internally much the same way that we do externally. We turn away from what we want and just ask God to work His desires in us. Going back to David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, we see an example of this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Following David's example then, we we go to God in prayer and seek what He requires. We've seen already. That which God requires, He will give. Then James says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, 
Why is it that, that humble submission to God is supposed to look gloomy? I thought we were supposed to rejoice in the Lord, right? Find our joy there. Gloom? Really? Does James mean to communicate that all the days of my life, if I live in humble submission to God, that I should be sad? Well, no and yes. You see, specifically addressing these believers in their embrace of sin, he's explaining what their attitude towards sin should be like. It, it isn't just a gloomy existence that he's calling his readers to, but in the face of their spiritual adultery, there should be no joy, no laughter. That he, he's, he's condemning them for this kind of emotion toward what's true of their spiritual state. There should be weeping and mourning over the unholiness and impurity that remains in us in this life. This is simply an echo of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Our continual spiritual depravity that we have, even as children of God, that we carry with us through this life until the moment of death, when there we will be glorified and receive release from that sin that we struggle with in this life. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you, reminding us that if this humility is what characterizes your life, there will be a point at which we don't struggle with these things any longer. But this submission to God doesn't just apply vertically. It applies horizontally as well. In verses 11 and 12, James brings this passage full circle. If you'll remember, he began the chapter by addressing the conflicts and the fights that were caused by the sinful passions that they wanted to satisfy. So having now dealt with the underlying issues... And and called for faithful devotion to God and humble submission to Him, James returns to the surface level issue. And he calls for submission to God through humility to one another. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks, uh, speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. The issue at hand, according to the apostle, is an arrogant heart that has forgotten both its place and its limitations. That they were going beyond lovingly trying to discern the authenticity of one's salvation They were going beyond holding one another accountable to spiritual fidelity. And they had apparently began to make estimations about the ultimate spiritual state and destiny of others. And from that, they began to make hurtful, disparaging remarks about people. 
But James says that in doing this, you take yourself out from under the law of God as one who humbly submits to it, and you begin to think yourself the one who wields it as a judge. So James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save those under his law and to destroy those under his law. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And of course, the answer is no one. We are no one to judge our brothers and sisters in this manner. So the matter of conflicts causing such turmoil among the believers is solved in a broader context of spiritual fidelity and humble obedience to God. He's he's helped them now to discover who they are in light of who God is. And what must be true of them if they're actually united to God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in this broader application of considering spiritual fidelity and humble obedience, we are challenged this morning to question ourselves concerning our humility before God. And it it either should bring in us encouragement, or perhaps for you this morning, it should bring some conviction. True believers cannot long delight in sin because the grace of God produces in them faithful devotion and humble submission to Him. If this is not true of you this morning, then I would urge you to recognize who you are and who God is. Recognize that you are at enmity with the God of the universe. Dwell on that. And in dwelling on that, I trust that you will run to him for his grace in Christ, trusting in his perfect life, death, and resurrection for faith and peace with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for what Christ has done in order to bring us peace with you, Lord. I pray, God, that this morning you would work in us humility before you so that we might submit ourselves to you. This is what your children do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.